0: Well, let's pray. Lord, that uh, hymn writer understood the bent of the human heart well when he said, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. We are not prone to faithfulness, not prone to obedience in ourselves. We see that proneness to wander. We see that proneness for our hearts to grow out of tune, for the embers, the fire in our heart to cool and to quench the Spirit. And so we cry out to you this morning that you would um, blow on these dry bones. We would stand on our feet to praise you. Lord, this is not a time for haphazard Christianity to affirm certain true statements Lord, let us be those that delight in you, in the inward man, that we would um, desire you as David did, more than treasure, more than silver or gold, more than honey out of the honeycomb, that we would desire your word and to hear from you and to, to be in your presence. Remember Joshua, who didn't ever want to leave the tent of meeting. Even after the presence, the, the the physical presence had departed. Because to be in the tent of meeting was to be in proximity with you, Lord. That you would help our hearts to take after Joshua. That in whatever we do, we would never stray far. We would never wander. That we would give ourselves with every effort to the means of grace you've appointed, to fellowshipping with one another, to the Word of God. to to these elements, Lord. I pray you'd open our hearts this morning to receive what you have for us. We pray in your name, amen. Well, always good to be back at Westmount, um, not only as (laughs) co-belligerents, but co-laborers, more importantly, co-recipients of of grace. Um, We can truly say we thank God upon every remembrance of you. We thank you um, for your presence during this last time. I vowed I would never bring my phone into the pulpit, but I made an exception this morning. I was reading um, Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. This morning was really good. So this is just uh, something to encourage you, uh, kind of unrelated. As a Christian, you have to live in the midst of an ungodly world. And it is of little use for you to cry, woe is me. Jesus did not pray that you should be taken out of the world, and what He did not pray for you, you need not desire. Better far in the Lord's strength to meet the difficulty and glorify Him in it. We are going to be in Acts chapter twelve this morning. We've been going through Acts as a church for the last number of month uh, months. It's been incredibly encouraging, incredibly relevant, as all God's Word is. Um, So I hope to encourage you with um, some of that here this morning. So Acts chapter 12, we'll read to the end of the chapter. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second gate, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel. And rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. And when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. The people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Well, how would you feel about uh, starting a new job with no job description, no title, no set duties, or list of expectations? You were just kind of thrown into this position and had to figure it out as you went along. Well, that would likely be a very frustrating experience for you, because you can't faithfully execute your responsibilities when you have no idea what those responsibilities are. Um, there's been a lot of renewed discussion along these lines about the church over the past two years. What are the responsibilities? What is the nature of the church? That's been the good news, the bad news is that what these discussions have revealed is that many people have no idea what the nature or the purpose of the church is, no idea what it looks like on the ground to participate in a local expression of Christ's body. What we're seeing here in Acts 12 is the church in action, the church on mission, It isn't a detached account of something that happened to somebody else. It's a nuts and bolts account. These people are on the ground. James has already been executed. We read here, Peter, one of the main pillars of the early church, has just been arrested. And he too is soon to be executed. From one perspective, this could be the end of everything they worked for up till now. Right, The end of the church started with a bang, now it's in trouble. And yet instead of that, it's the launching point for great encouragement and great expansion. And that actually is the book of Acts in a nutshell. The harder you squeeze the church, the faster it grows. I want us to see four things in our passage Today. Um, should characterize the church. Maybe we could view them as kind of a church job description. We're going to see that the church is a suffering body, first of all. Secondly, we're going to see that the church is a praying body. Thirdly, we're going to see that the church is an enduring body. And fourthly, and finally, we're going to see that the church is a vindicated body. So first, we see the church is a suffering body. Uh, We've been told in verse 19 of the previous chapter, chapter 11, the Christians have scattered as a result of the persecution, in the wake of Stephen's death. We're told in verse 1 of chapter 12 that Herod uh, has decided to lay violent hands on some who belong to the church. Uh, The Herod in question here is is Herod Agrippa I. Um, There's a number of Herods in Acts, so you could be forgiven for getting confused. He was the grandson of Herod the Great, who uh, was the Herod who ordered the slaughter of all the babies in Bethlehem after Jesus was born. Uh, Herod Agrippa, this Herod here, he was a shrewd politician He was also great friends with the Roman Emperor Caligula, who by all accounts was insane. So that probably sheds a bit of light on Herod's character as well. Um, We don't exactly know why it was that Herod decided to arrest and execute James. What were the inciting events that provoked him to do that? But we do absolutely know why he's continuing the persecution. We read that in verse 3. Uh, Herod noticed that the arrest of certain prominent Christians pleased the Jews. So in other words, it made the mob happy. In classic politician style, Herod is first and foremost interested in holding on to his power. He's massively insecure about his position. And rightly so, because most kings didn't last very long during this period of time. So he does what all insecure leaders do, and that is to attack, to accuse, to persecute, to suppress whatever group they perceive to be a threat to their authority, to their agenda. He throws them in jail. He kills James. He arrests Peter. He's going to do whatever he has to to ingratiate himself to the present powers. That might be the Jewish mob, that might be Caesar. Whatever is a risk to the total eclipse of the Caesar state or the Herod state has to be put down. And that, throughout history, usually means Christians. Um, Some of you may have heard of Francis Schaeffer. A large part of his ministry was warning about the inherent totalitarian trend of the state, he said, no totalitarian authority nor authoritarian state can tolerate those who have an absolute by which to judge that state and its actions. The Christians had that absolute in God's revelation. Remember here, John the Baptist, who went after another Herod, Herod Antipas, for marrying his brother's wife, what gives John the audacity to do that? Why is he allowed to do that? Well, it's because John was under an authority higher than that of Herod. Here Schaeffer continued, Because the Christians had an absolute universal standard by which to judge not only personal morals, but the state, they were counted as enemies of totalitarian Rome and were thrown to the beast's. And we've said it before, and we'll keep saying it. Adherence to Christ as Lord and King will always put us at odds with earthly rulers who presume to rule outside the set bounds of their authority. Christians are and have always been a kind of frustrating anomaly to the state. On the one hand, we're the best citizens you could wish for, right? We love our neighbors, we work hard, we pay our taxes. I hope you do. We avoid crime. We pray for the peace and stability of the state. Uh, We don't get jazzed at the prospect of anarchy. Our ambition is not to overthrow the government and set up our own. And yet at the same time, A Christian's highest allegiance is to Christ, not to a king or an ideology or a political scheme or an official. Where those authorities interrupt or overreach into a sphere that isn't theirs, Christians have always resisted, and so must we always. That fact alone makes Christians a threat to tyrants. It makes us a threat to the state and to all the lackeys that benefit from state sponsorship. It makes us a threat to every authority that presumes to require absolute submission. And there's a lot more of those than we might think. It could be a husband, it could be a boss, it could be an expert or a pastor. Wherever an authority is present present that functionally lives as if they are the highest authority. There is the trend towards total reach. Why is that? Well, uh, because of sin. Because of sin, everything is always kicking against its defined restraints. Children resist parental restraints, people resist gender restraints, postmoderns resist reality restraints. We don't like to stay in defined limits because we're proud, sinful people that want to set ourselves up as the authority. And being in politics or anywhere else doesn't cure you from that impulse. And until Christ returns, we have to acknowledge and live our lives aware of that tendency, both in ourselves and in others. As it pertains to the secular state, church will always be a foil to it the scriptures testify to it history testifies to it experience testifies to it and we have to acknowledge that we will be persecuted to a lesser or greater degree because of that maybe jail as in peter's case peter's case it may be execution as in james case but that's in the job description if we don't like that prospect, Jesus says, then we aren't worthy of him. Matthew ten thirty eight. Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And it would be convenient for us to be able to decide which crosses we could bear. But um, that's not within our power. Uh, the providence of God ordains which crosses come to us. Um, And so he'll help us bear up under them. Acknowledging that this is the reality isn't just so we can endure suffering. Scripture never puts suffering merely under the category of endurance. Just knuckle down, stiff upper lip, Get through it. It's not just an ugly inconvenience. It is, in fact, a great privilege. That's what we're told in Philippians. To us, God has given the privilege not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. It's a privilege for many reasons, but mostly because when we remember, when we consider the great love with which the Father loved us, behold what manner of love cost him his son, then every opportunity to testify, to demonstrate his greatness, becomes a great opportunity, becomes a privilege. How worthy he is. It's like when you are buying a gift for someone you really care about. You're not, I hope you're not, shopping with a thought, man, what is the cheapest thing I can buy here without making it look like it's the cheapest thing? You're like, I'm walking out of here with the best thing I can afford, right? Because this person is worthy of whatever I can afford. Here's Thomas Brooks. In former times, the sense of the love of God made the martyrs esteem tyrants as gnats and fleas and torments as flea bitings. Tertullian, speaking of his times, says that to be accused was the wish of Christians and punishment for Christ they counted joy. A certain woman running in all haste with her child in her arms being asked to cause. Oh, she says, I hear a great number of Christians are appointed to be martyred and I'm afraid lest I and my little ones will come too late. There's no way you bluff. Your way into that kind of eagerness to lay down your life or your job or your friends or your family if it comes to that. That's been the refining work of the church over the past two years. It only happens as we live in vital close communion with Christ. As we delight in him and see him as that treasure in a field. And as that most valuable pearl, worthy of whatever sacrifice we can lay down for him. But even then, it's, it's a pure gift of the Spirit. This eagerness this, to, to see suffering as a privilege, and one we should all pray for. And speaking of prayer, as we move on, we see that the imprisonment of the apostles isn't the end of this story Herod is seemingly at the top of his game here, isn't he? He's friends with the emperor. The Jews love him. He's got a bunch of people at the end of this chapter revering him as a god. Nothing seemingly going to stop him. Nothing, that is, except verse 5. And verse 5 might be called uh, the death toll of every human plan. Earnest prayer was made to God by the church. And that's our second point, and that, that, is, that the church is a praying body. Earnest prayer. Let's look at that word earnest for a few minutes. It, in Greek, it literally means to, to fully stretch out, uh, or to pull on something to maximum tightness. So picture a tug of war where both sides are just yanking on that rope. There's no give there the rope is is all in to that battle that's the kind of prayer that the church body was directing to god on behalf of peter it's the same kind of prayer that's being described in hebrews 13:3 continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering how do you pray when you're in the midst of suffering Fully committed, all in, right? No ounce of energy spared. Because if you know that it's just you trying to get through it in your own strength, something's going to give. You don't have the capacity to endure, let alone rejoice in suffering. You don't have that kind of strength in yourself. I don't. None of us do. Now, here's the question. They're praying all in, that's established. What are they praying for him? What are they praying for Peter? What's the content of the church's prayer? See, most of us automatically assume that they are praying for his release. But it doesn't say that. Now, that that may have been one of the things they were praying for him, but it certainly wasn't all of it. We know that because when Peter shows up at the door They're totally surprised, right? They saw him, verse 16, and were amazed. They didn't expect this. Their prayer must have been larger than that. And to assume that the substance of our prayer for persecuted saints should be for the removal of their trial is a totally unbiblical reduction of the doctrine of prayer. Remember, Herod has already killed James. There's no doubt at all that the church was engaged in the same kind of earnest prayer for James. But if the sum total of their prayer amounted to, Lord, please break James out of prison, man, that's a sad ending to that story. But what if the expectations and prayers of the early church weren't like ours often are? Lord, make it easy for them. And spare us while you're at it. How can I say that? Well, I can say that by looking at just a few verses from probably the most imprisoned, persecuted Christian in history. The Apostle Paul. What kind of prayer is Paul asking for while he's in prison? Or being persecuted? Or on the run? Let's look at Ephesians six, nineteen to 20 He says, pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. What's his request for prayer here? That the prospect of persecution wouldn't quench the proclamation of the gospel, that's always a danger for us. Because in suffering, this is what happens? The self-protective impulse takes over, right? You just want to hunker down, hide out somewhere, lick your wounds. That outward compulsion, it just shrivels if it isn't sustained. Courage and persecution is only something that the spirit can do. And we need to pray to that end. Again, here's Hebrews 13, 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves all honorably in all things. Pray that we would have a good conscience. They wanted to conduct themselves honorably in the midst of persecution. There's lots of temptations in the midst of persecution. Temptations to resentment, temptation to bitterness, to anger, to complaining, to retaliation to trying to find solace in other things, to backsliding, all kinds of dangers. So this is another way for us to pray for persecuted saints, that Jesus would assist them, would assist us to hold to a good testimony in the midst of trying circumstances. Colossians 4.3, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. Do We also see that Paul prays for open doors in the midst of persecution. That is an intuitive. We don't see how doors could open in the midst of, of seemingly closed doors of persecution. But God often does this. Um, Early on, when James Coates was arrested, I'm sure many of us prayed that he would quickly be released so he could return to his family and his church. Now, that wasn't a wrong thing to pray. But then remember, he was there for over a month. Does that mean that God didn't answer our prayer? No. Listen to Coates. I would often have guys coming to my my door. He's talking about being in prison and want to speak with me and share difficulties in their life, I would share the gospel with them. We'd be talking through a door to each other, but I would share the gospel with them. There was an inmate in the cell door next to him who asked James if he could lead a Bible study in prison. So they started reading from the book of John, and and three or four other prisoners joined them. When he was finally released, All the inmates cheered for him on his way out. So God heard the prayers of his saints and answered them by preserving Coates' testimony in the midst of trying circumstances and also giving him opportunity to proclaim the gospel. See, biblical prayer sets any personal concern we may have for persecuted saints under the umbrella of concern for the greater advance of God's kingdom. The hope, listen, the hope of ambassadors isn't that the lives of their fellow ambassadors will be easy, but that the message they've been entrusted with will spread. That's the hope of ambassadors. So we need to ask ourselves, are we stretching ourselves out in prayer for persecuted saints in all the ways we've discussed and not just for the Canadian church the American church Wang Yi pastor of Early Rain Church in China was arrested in 2019 on charges of incitement to subvert state power he was given a prison sentence for 9 years last we heard of him they're keeping him in solitary confinement they're feeding him moldy rice. He's very sick. They're not sure how much longer he's going to last, and we need to be praying for him. So we need to, to get better at earnest prayer for the persecuted saints. We're growing in lots of ways. you know, Our church and, and Westmount, it's really encouraging, but this is an area we all need to grow in, an area I need to grow in, Urgent prayer for the church. Third, uh, and this is a short but an important point, we see that the church is an enduring body. What we have here in Acts 12 is really a tale of two people. First, we have Peter. We're told they're bound in chains, behind locked doors, numerous guards around, waiting to be executed. In their hand you have Herod, the head of the Judean state, all the Jews cheering him on. And notice, this is important. So those are the two kind of lies we have set up. Verse 8, the angel has to wake Peter up. (laughs) So Peter's not worried here. He's not thrashing around with a sword, cutting off people's ears like he used to do. He's not worried. He's just passed out in the cell. Why is that? Well, because Jesus has already told him, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter knows that Jesus is going to keep him around for as long as he needs to be around for. Establish the church, Not a second longer, though. And when he departs to be with Christ, he knows the church is just going to keep going because Jesus promised him that it would. And the mistake that rulers always make is thinking that the church triumphant, the church known from before the beginning of the world, the church purchased by the blood of Jesus, is just another institution that can be snuffed out when it gets in the way. Lots of people have tried. Herod the Great, kill all the babies. Maybe we'll kill Jesus. Jesus escapes. The crowds, let's crucify Jesus. Then maybe we can stop his kingdom and his message. Jesus raised from the dead. Ascends to heaven. Saul and the crowds... Let's kill Stephen and drag Christians off to jail. The church explodes with growth. Herod Agrippa. Let's kill James and Peter. Peter escapes. Church continues. Rome. Let's kill all the Christians to make sure we forever remain the eternal city. Barbarians sack Rome. Christianity keeps going. Communism secularism, various forms of statism over the years, all at various times, have tried to stamp out the church. And here we are. <laughs> and there's a million more of us around the world. By God's grace, that's, a re- that's amazing. And that's a reason to be encouraged. And that's why Peter isn't worried about what's going to happen to the church if he goes. That's why he's sleeping. That's why Paul and Silas can sing hymns in the middle of prison. That's why Christians throughout the centuries have gone gladly to whatever end Providence has in store for them. Because look at verse 24. The word of God increased and multiplied. What does God do when the rulers set themselves against the Lord and against his people? Let's all say it together. He laughs. He laughs. (laughs) He laughs because it's just so preposterous. It's like a bunch of little peasants with clubs and pitchforks mounting an insurrection against a king with a massive army, walls. We all know how that's going to end. We see a foreshadowing of that end in how this situation eventually plays out as we come to our final point, and that is the church is a vindicated body. When things seemed at their blackest, when evil Herod seemed to be at the height of his power, we see the tables turn. Peter is released. God sends an angel to release Peter and lead him out back to his friends and to further ministry. Herod, on the other hand, meets a fairly grisly end. It says here that after his speech, he was eaten by worms and died. Um, Josephus, a church historian, actually, he corroborates this account. On the second day, Josephus says, Herod put on a garment made holy of silver and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment... being illuminated by the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king did neither rebuke them, nor reject their impious flattery. Apparently after his speech, he was stricken with severe abdominal cramps, and he died within five days of that speech. And the scripture confirms to us that this was a judgment on Herod. Why? Well, we're told in verse 23, because he did not give God the glory. Now let's talk about that phrase for a bit. What does it mean to give glory to God? And how is failing to do that deserve this kind of punishment? Well, to give glory to God is to give back to him the honor, the value, and the worth that he deserves. It's to live according to the purpose for which we've been made. It's to love, worship, and enjoy him forever. To ignore or deny that purpose isn't just about missing out on God's wonderful plan for your life. It's to reject living according to the purpose for which we've been made. It's about a failure to pay back a debt that you owe. It's to live in active defiance of God's intention for your life and so to live in active defiance of God. That's why it's serious. Remember in Mark 11, Jesus curses the fig tree that failed to produce figs. It wasn't in other words it was cursed because it it failed to fulfill its purpose which was to bear figs. It wasn't just about Jesus being mad about figs. It was a warning To all of us, when we fail to give God glory in our lives, we are setting ourselves up for Jesus' curse. For the same fate as Herod, maybe not as immediate or as dramatic, but just as certain. Unless we repent, Jesus warns elsewhere, and, and turn to faith and trust and life in him, we will all likewise perish. It's not just about reforming our lives or getting some religion. It's about being brought from death to life, from enmity with God to peace with God. Jim was saying earlier, there's, there's no middle ground when it comes to this issue. People think they can just slink through life, avoiding all decisions of allegiance, just trying to keep everybody happy. And that maybe at the end, they can just sneak into heaven as a neutral party. But not when it comes to Jesus Christ. You either live for his glory, or you live for your own glory, or for the glory of some other lesser God. And we will all someday answer for where we invested our glory in this life. Moving on, just as we see a foretaste of the church's vindication in the judgment of Herod, so we also see a foretaste of the church's vindication in God's deliverance of Peter. At the moment when things seem bleakest, all the chains and the doors and the guards and the bars just melt away. And he's led into freedom. It's what Tolkien called the the moment of, of eucatastrophe, the turn in the story when total darkness gives way to light. God has seen fit in this present age to make it so the church appears to be the loser. A misrepresented, maligned, hopelessly outnumbered institution the object of all kinds of injustice. But it won't always be the case. One day Jesus will return. He will break through the clouds and throw open whatever prisons and tribunals and sufferings his people may be enduring. He will do it as easily as the angel does here. The graves will give up their dead as easily as the chains fell off Peter's hands jails will open their cells as easily as the iron gate leading to the city in this chapter. We need to be convinced of this. We need to be convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you rather be the frenzied, psychotic Peter or the resting Peter? The Peter anxious and not really sure how all of this is going to end? Or the Peter that knows that Herod and the guards and the systems are all on a short leash? We need to remember that the church is the bride of Christ. The husband isn't going to forget about his bride. And Jesus isn't going to forget about us. But until he returns, we have our marching orders, our marching orders. And we don't need to be afraid. We just need to be obedient. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the great love with which you have loved us. When we were strangers, when we were far away, you ran to meet us as as that parable goes. As that disobedient and reckless son was in rags, trying to figure out how he could work off his death, the father runs to meet him and puts a, a robe and a ring on him rejoices over him, rejoices over his son who was lost but is now found. And so amazingly, you rejoice over us, Lord. Um, We were all just as lost, all just as as deceived in our sin. And yet, Lord, we thank you for such mercy as, as you have shown us through the cross. Lord, I pray, I thank you so much for Westmount. I pray that you would continue to strengthen them, in the days ahead, we don't know what's coming, and yet we, we know the, the end, we know the conclusion, we know how the story works out eventually, um, and so I pray you would just continue to give courage, give hope, and, and hearten the saints here, and uh, we thank you, Lord, that, that this is your world, this is your story, and it will all work out to your glory in the end. I pray this in your name, amen.